I'm better off going along with the overwhelmingly accepted consensus of the scientists in any field, mm. even though it might be tipped over in the future, than I am in coming off with a crazy theory like um, sound waves are carried because of invisible purple flying spaghetti <laughs> monsters. <laughs> I can't think of any more human activity than conducting science experiments. The game I play is a very interesting one. It's imagination in a tight straitjacket. The beauty of a living thing is not the atoms that go into it, but the way those atoms are put together. What I always think should be the basis of education is not answers, but questions. We should teach kids how to question. We, we promised they're clean. From the dollar shop. Yeah. Hashtag student life. Yes. <laughs> okay, so you've got your mics. Yes, we have. Yeah, we're ready Could we just do it? Now, should I get in closer to the microphone? You're perfect where I you are. I think you should be good. Okay, there's not too... This is actually my mic. Hamid's yeah. got you on, I have on yours. The picture is... The irrelevant. Uh, picture's okay. We're yeah. not using that picture? We'll oh. probably use that picture, that picture, and that picture. Okay, so okay, let's start. Yeah, yeah, cool. you are. Okay, well, this is going to be fun. Well, look, first of all, I'd love to welcome you to our podcast, Blab Coats. Dr. Carl, thanks a lot for coming on. Blab Coats. Yeah. Blab Coats. Noise, Blabbing noise. about yeah. science in lab coats. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good, good. <laughs> yep. um, look, you're extremely well known as being, you know, one of Australia's great science communicators. And well, we, I'm not worthy, but thank you. Uh, we, we like to try and find out about our guests about where their journey started. So I was wondering kind of what, what life experiences really drove you to this science communication path that you're on now? Um, bah, 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 God, uh, science communication. I uh, like telling stories and there's amazing stuff happening in science. And if you can turn it into a little story, then people are interested and they like hearing your little story. And then that way you can meet them and have a good time with them. And I guess the whole science thing started with a book on astronomy when I was about seven years old and I just suddenly realized how big the whole universe was and that just really filled me with a sense of awe and wonder that never stopped. So it's, it's, so firstly, the natural curiosity combined with the desire to tell stories in a futile attempt to be liked by people. I guess uh, telling stories is probably, yeah, really enjoyable and I guess the universe is the greatest story to tell, yeah. isn't it? Well, the isn't that Lawrence big. Krauss's book, The Greatest Story Ever Told? Oh, really? Yeah. I haven't read it's that one. Such a f it's think, a good read, is it? It's yeah. so good, yeah. I think Richard Dawkins has a similar one, uh, a similar title as well about evolution, but yeah. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. Ah, you got me go. Okay, next. <laughs> <laughs> so there wasn't one specific moment that you could recall to where you decided, okay, uh, I'm even though I've done science, but I'm going to actually focus my energy towards communicating science. No, no. The, um, I guess it 
kind of began when I went on Double J or back in the late 70s to describe an anti-gravity machine that I was building with a friend of mine that failed. And then in the early 80s, when NASA rejected me for their space program and they were doing something on the launch of the space shuttle, I came in and talked on Double J about it. But there was no... Uh, deliberate method where I, moment where I said I will now go down this pathway it just sort of evolved because at that time beginning from the 1980s I was also uh, studying medicine and um, then drifted into being a doctor at the kids hospital as well as test driving four wheel drives as well as going out of that and then becoming a TV weatherman leaving mm. the medical system and then going back into it again part time at the kids hospital and just drifting through a whole bunch of parallel careers so I guess the main motivation for becoming a science broadcaster would be an emotional one when I was at the kids hospital and a kid uh, died from whooping cough, being the first kid to die in all of Australia mm. from whooping cough after a gap of 20 years of zero deaths because various TV shows thought that they would create a controversy and sell more dog food by saying, hey, vaccinations don't work. And that helped fire up and give fuel to the anti-vaccination um, program. And the advantage for them was that they sold more dog food. The disadvantage is you got some parents with a dead baby. Mm. Wow. So it it was it was that really, it was it was it was that misconception that people had that that kind of drove you or partially. That was one of the big ones. Did like, you have children at the time? When, yeah, when, yeah. Because I, I have children as well, and I know, like before I had children, you know, the kind of children dying and going through horrific pain and things and you, didn't you, affect me so much. Nah. But then, then uh, after you have kids, whenever you see that stuff, you know you turn into a blubbering idiot you know you're kind sure. of crying and you, and you really feel it well being a doctor in a kids hospital was the best job i ever had in my whole life mm. but i knew i could do more in the media mm. by telling i could do more good for the, i could do more some total of good for the society in australia where i could have a bit of influence than i could as being a medical doctor. There I could only influence one family at a time. Yeah. Whereas going into the media, I could do more good and say, get your kids vaccinated. Mm. It's, it's an under-recognized part of science, isn't it? Because um, uh, a lot of scientists, I think, don't value communication. But if you're making a really great scientific discovery, what's the value of that discovery if you can't communicate it to a broader audience? Well, the, the discovery has its own value because of the good that happens in the technological or industrial field or biochemical field that follows on from it. And I think it is unfair to ex expect scientists to be communicators. Like, mm -hmm. you don't expect a car mechanic to also be a chef. Mm -hmm. One skill is more than enough. If you've, got, if you've got one skill and you enjoy it and you love it, that's great. And to then say, oh, well, then you should also be able to communicate it. That's a whole different field. Mm. And uh, people say to me, yeah, why don't you do experiments? And the straight answer is, well, it's a four-year university course mm. at Questacon in how to do experiments. I'm not going to be able to pick that up. And so, in, for example, in medicine, I had eight hours. In my six years of medical training, I had eight hours on 
dietetics. What the heck do I know about diet, apart from those eight hours and the stuff I've picked up, as compared to somebody who spends the whole four years concentrating on that and then does a PhD? I know nothing compared to them. So it is a bit unfair to expect expect scientists to be science broadcaster communicators. So that's why there's a role for for people like you and me. We we, we can sort of be the transition. And it it is curious because if you just sort of not listening and just talking it's sort of like a blind conduit just talking but if you're listening and talking and then taking it from the scientists who know the stuff and then it goes through your brain and out you're sort of like a conduit like a water pipe carrying goodness from one place to another right i guess speaking about the utility of communicating science um we do face many challenges and you you mentioned the anti-vaxxer movement as being one um, but we have things like climate change ex- uh, space exploration feeding a growing population what role do you think that science communication is, is going to have in meeting those challenges um, it's essential so people doing the broadcasting of the data around science science is really good but it's not just the data you've got to turn into stories because people like stories and many people will filter what they receive through their eyes and ears, through the filter of their brain, specifically their culture, their religion, um, and where they are in the world. And so if you talk about gun deaths in Texas, um, I'm guessing that in most cases they say, well, it's because we don't have enough guns. Mm. Uh, If everybody had a gun, then nobody would shoot anybody. (laughs) Right. Um, And with regard to something really topical for the last 20 years, climate change, many people just simply refuse to accept the hard data um, and because they're filtering it through their... um, culture i guess so in the case of ex-senator malcolm roberts of the two nation party because he was both british and australian (laughs) um he refused to accept the validity of the nasa data whenever he was shown any data that over the has for the last third of a century shown that climate change is real he'd simply say that's faked but instead he chose to believe a strange mix of conspiracy theories about how the United Nations wants to take away our sovereignty and the easiest way to do that is to get funding to set up its own army and the easiest way to get funding is to set up the myth that climate change is real and therefore they'll impose a carbon tax which will let them put on an army which will then take over the Australian army, the American army, the Chinese army, etc. That's what he believes. Yeah, that's, that's and I think that's probably mainly for ideological reasons. Is that what don't know? Saying? Yeah. Uh, it, it's hard to understand what's going on in another person's head, even if you try to walk in their shoes. For me, it's a fascinating question, though, because I consider myself a skeptic. So I, I you know, I say this, but I try and I'm trying to like prove myself wrong and things like that. Yeah, in and other words, you want to have something proven to you before right. you believe and, it. And I want to believe things that are true. Yeah, I, I, value, I, I place value on truth, but I, and so it's very hard for me to understand how people can have those have those views. Sure. Yeah, it's well, an interesting question, I think, to me. The interesting philosophy that most scientists follow, even though they might not have thought it, is that they hold their theories on the tips of their fingers, mm. so the merest breath of fact will blow away their theories or their, their hypotheses. And so with regard to the Big Bang, we've got 
three or four really strong bits of data mm. telling us that the Big Bang is a pretty damn good hypothesis. But if something comes along that incorporates those and tips over the current hypothesis on the Big Bang, man, it's gone and we're into the new stuff. And with regard to why fingers and toes wrinkle when you go in a bath, I wrongly believed something for about 20 years until I came up with an explanation that just showed that I was wrong. And so I threw out the old stuff and went with the, the better stuff. And, and if something comes through with more data, I'll, if necessary, I'll throw out the old stuff and go with what the best data that we have at the moment. So what scientists do, and I find myself uh, going along with them, is go along with the best available data that you have. Now, I'm not an expert in anything. So if the geologists say that that's metamorphic and that's igneous rock, sure. And if a metallurgist tells me that to turn iron ore into stainless steel, you've got to get rid of the oxygen, add a bit of carbon, and 18% chrome, and 8% nickel, sure. And if a paediatric oncologist tells me this is how you treat a three-year-old kid with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, I'll go along with it. And if the climate scientists, and once again, I'm not expecting that, say that this is the situation, I'll go along with it. So I'm better off going with the overall expert, uh, overall well, overwhelmingly expect, uh, let me rephrase that. I'm better off going along with the overwhelmingly accepted consensus of the scientists in any field, mm. even though it might be tipped over in the future, than I am in coming off with a crazy theory like um, sound waves are carried because of invisible purple flying spaghetti <laughs> monsters. <laughs> That's funny. You know, this reminds me, before we move on to yeah. the next question, of uh, Plato's allegory. And it seems like... Oh, yeah. It, it, seems, it seems like... People accept everything as soon as, but as soon as it, it fringes upon their their beliefs that they hold true, all of a sudden, you know, they're in that cave and they refuse to be taken out of that cave. They, they're they, in the cave. They're in the cave. Nice, nice analogy, Hamid. Yes. You know, they they want to see those shadows and accept it as reality, because coming out of that cave, as you know, in Plato's allegory, it can be no, painful. Tell me. So, so t tell me. Plato's allegory. So, Assume I know nothing. Okay. So Plato's allegory. So there are these three men um, or women, um, and they are essentially fixed in their position. They are bound so that they can't communicate with one another, and they are shown on the walls. They are shown these shadows. The walls of a cave. Yeah, the wall of the cave. The cave, I should say. There are these shadows and these shapes coming from the light outside the sunlight or a fire or something. Yeah. So there's actually a light source behind them yep. that they they are not aware of, and there are these men that carry these shapes. So they're walking across oh. in front of the light. Source and so these three gentlemen that are looking at the sh shadows are convinced that this is reality um, and this is true reality. But what happens is one of those men actually f are freed and they climb out of the cave and and the, the, it's it's a struggle that's painful. And when they when they when they come out, they see the sun and it's beautiful. It's burning their eyes. It's painful, but they see reality for what it is. They see the green, luscious ah. trees and grasses. And so now they're in this new reality and they and they get used to this reality. A few months goes past and and then they remember that he remembers his friends oh let me get them out of the cave and let them experience true reality but when he goes back and he tells them this is all a lie this is just shadows this isn't true reality initially they tell him hey these are lies don't stop talking and ah. then they go stop talking or we're going to kill you so they start making threats ah. and you can see how applicable it is um, in, in many situations, um, uh, particularly when it comes to climate change, because I have friends who accept science in every other aspect. Every other aspect, all the way from A in anthropology up to Z in zoology, but in climate change and only climate change. 
and evolution. Oh, okay. And yeah. evolution. Climate change and evolution. And evolution. Right. They have they have this this blindness. They they refuse to come out of the cave and see the sun for what it is. But hang on. Have they heard of bacteria developing evolving sure. resistance to sure. antibiotics? Have they heard of insects evolve, evolving resistance to the pesticides? It it seems like they have ears but they can't listen and they have eyes but they don't see. Okay, now just backing up a bit. So this allegory, which I'm going to have to look up of Plato, is so famous, it's called... The, it's called Plato's Cave, I believe. Plato's Allegory of the Cave. Yeah. So it's just Plato's Allegory... Oh, oh man, that's okay. a great example. It's it's in uh, the the book Lawrence Krauss, actually, the greatest story ever told. He mentions it. He mentions okay, it Okay, I've got to read the original version by Plato. Yeah. Okay, but not in the original Greek, of course, because I can't... No. <laughs> that'd be okay. challenging. No, that'd be too hard. Yeah. Um, I thought we could maybe talk about um, your broad interests because you listed sure. a few of them today and you have a really diverse background from a lot of different interests. Including four-wheel driving. Yeah, Love it. exactly. And uh, so for me, I, I kind of have a few different interests as well. I'm like fishing on that. I like enjoy sport, uh, um, music and, and podcasting. Guitar teacher. Getting that, guitar mm-hmm. teacher. Yeah. I'm getting into science. Uh, the reason I love diverse interests is because you know, for me, life is finite and I want to like suck all these experiences out as, right. as much as I can and kind sure. of experience yeah. yeah. life as much because as I can. Because each second that's gone past, you're never getting it back again exactly. with our current technology. Exactly. And I want to have a taste of everything. Yeah, yeah. Me too. But, I, but also, at least for me, I think that the more you know about how the world and the universe works, the more amazing it becomes, right? You have more things that you can appreciate. So Alex, ah. is, a, Alex is a music teacher. So if he listens to music to Beethoven, he can he can hear much more than I can. Uh, ah, yes. I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. If I ever see a, a, a UFC fight, for instance, I can appreciate that at a deep ah. level than what a normal person can. And do they use a bit of that? Oh yeah, yeah. So there's there's striking where they use boxing, Muay Thai, but as soon as it gets to the floor, they use uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu as well as uh, wrestling techniques. But uh, I suppose really? the point, yeah, I suppose the point that I'm making is that I, I learned early on that the more you understand. About the the more interests you have, the more you're able to appreciate the world, and I think appreciation is key for a happy life. Yes. And now directing it to you, mm-hmm. uh, what is the impetus for your broad interests? Curiosity. I'm just um, so curious about the world that I have recently realized that I'm on a futile path to try and understand <laughs> everything in the universe, and I know it's futile, but I'm enjoying the ride. Yeah. That's a great answer. Yeah, by the way, with Brazilian jiu-jitsu, don't you, like with regular jiu-jitsu, end up stuffing your knees? I, it all depends on how you train. So I, I'm fortunate that I've had an instructor that takes us through a 15-minute warm-up. We do range of motion stuff. Um, but there are definitely, with all with all sports you have... Contact sports. Yeah, contact sports. But the beautiful thing about jiu-jitsu is that there's no striking. It's all grappling. So you're using leverage and technique to choke people out, to rip limbs. To choke them out. Oh, yeah. Nice, nice. It's so, it's so, and, and what's beautiful is when I see women doing it. So our instructor's wife is actually brown belt. She's one step away from a black belt Mm -hmm. and it's fascinating when you see like bodybuilders come into the gym and she runs through them like strangles them and it's it's the most (laughs) surreal thing you're like how is this she's just a wispy little thing compared to these uh, inverted pyramids of muscle and then flips them over her shoulder (laughs) and she did that to me actually there was there was two uh, situations there was a 14 15 year old kid and back then I was built from weightlifting when I first started about five years ago and there was this this lady Kim who, who was who was a purple belt at that time and my two experience I, I sparred with both of them and mm-hmm. this is my first class 
And I was, I was going home and I was just shocked by the fact that I had all these muscles, all this strength, and yet I was a child. I was getting manhandled by children and women. <laughs> you know? Well, when I did uh, Shirin, sorry, um, uh, Jeet Kune Do, I was the worst student in the class. And I remember that there was this lady who was much shorter than me and much slighter, and she'd beat me up every time. I was, I was the worst student. I was cool. I was cool. I, 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 we've got to ask you at least just yeah. one more question if we can. Yeah. Um, uh, we've just been on the radio with you, answering a lot of questions, oh, doing so our best. Help. Oh no, thanks no, for the thanks, offer. Man. That was yeah. like brilliant, really, really fun. Although I, I didn't give myself. you enough time to try to get the right the answers because it normally takes several hours to get the answer to anything. And I think the questions were: Do fish drink water? How does superglue work? And what causes the difficulty in reopening a freezer door immediately after you've shut it? The the thing I wanted to get to though. Questions are fascinating and finding answers to questions is fascinating where you're getting back to before about curiosity. But what I wanted to know from you is like, cause for me, the, the most intriguing thing about science isn't actually the answers. It's the questions that we don't have answers for. That's what they say. That's where the Nobel prize comes yeah. from. And so that's what really excites me. When I, when I hear a question that no one knows the answers for, like my spine tingles. Ah, so, yeah. so what are your favorite unanswered questions? I, I, in I science? had a bit of that. Like, you remember a couple of years ago, they LIGO, uh, the Gravitational Wave Observatory, mm-hmm. was there were rumours that they were going to announce something, and I was just waiting for it, and it came through on a Saturday morning, and in fact, I'm getting the tingle now, and I remember coming down into the kitchen, flipping open the iPad, and there it was, and I was just standing, leaning on the free, leaning on the table with my hands, looking at it, and a, a cup of tea was sort of boiling up in the background, you know, the kettle was about to start, and I just remember these tingles, just these waves of physical, visceral reactions, so... My eyeballs are seeing something on a page, a printed page equivalent of an iPad. Nobody's trying to attack me, and yet there's these waves of sensation running up and down my body. For and, and I sat down to read it more, and my legs were still tingling for about sixty seconds. Oh my God, we've discovered a new form of astronomy. So you're saying about a visceral reaction? Sorry to. Yep. Yeah, no, you, no, you, that, that's you, awesome. You get that, do you? Yeah, I, I do. But I, what I wanted to get at with the question is, I get that sometimes. I get it when I find answers to things. Yeah. But I get it probably more when. I, I, I hear people talk about stuff that we don't know. Ah. When we talk about the things that just no humans know, that kind of really like mm. drives me. These unanswered questions, they just like, ah. Oh. Well, especially the big ones with the universe. That's, yeah. that's easy. Well, they're the ones that... I like, can, like dark yeah. matter, 25% uh, of the universe, dark energy, 70%. Yeah, like percent, dark, lay it on me, lay it on me, things. baby. Yeah. That, 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 but, and yet, our children or your children or their children will have much more understanding and it won't mm. be that much of a mystery. They'll, they'll have different mysteries, yeah. but bigger ones as well because the bigger our bubble of knowledge goes, well, where it intersects reality, that surface area becomes bigger. So we're always ending up with more stuff we don't know. Yeah. And I find that really thrilling and exciting. That's probably the best part is about answering a question is finding out all the new stuff that you don't you know and all out. the new questions that now you've <laughs> yeah. got to go and work and, and out. And the details as well, like when yeah. fish run water over their gills is the gill on the outside of the body and is it their forward motion through the water that causes the um, water to go across the gill or do they actually open their mouth and then squirt it across we still haven't got that and we had a whole three quarters of an hour yeah, <laughs> yeah i know it's not enough time yeah. there's, there's so much to know it's like yeah yeah, yeah. Like, 
do you want to uh, I was going to just give you an analogy about yeah, my thesis me. because I just finished it. Um, What's your um, thesis um, on? Um, my thesis is uh, looking at basically we're we're utilizing a type of spectral analysis, a new approach to spectral analysis. Spectral but, analysis. Now I should point out that in one hour I've got to be on air with a school somewhere in Australia at the university after I've got out of here, packed up and had okay. my lunch. So let's keep moving along. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, so let's skip that and go on to the next question. Oh, you oh I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay. Look, look. Uh, yeah, we'll next time we'll, we'll do it. We'll, yeah. we'll talk about it after. Go on. What's okay. your next question? Um, it, and this is probably towards the end. Uh, I mean. <sighs> What are looking into the future? Mm-hmm. Um, what are some things that keep you at night, keep you awake at night, and some things that really get you excited when you wake up in the morning? Um, I'm worried with climate change that it can go awfully bad. Um, the weird thing about it is that it's a ridiculously easy thing to fix technologically. Within 10 years, the amount of carbon dioxide that we throw into the air could be zero from making electricity. For transport, we could bring it down, we could do, bring it to zero in 15 years. Agriculture is going to be harder because it's alive and it'll fight us, but I reckon you know, 25 to 50 years, we can sort of bring it to a zero-sum game. And beginning right now as well, we could also start sucking back the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So... If we were to do um, massive tree growing, we could uh, take account of 10 years' worth of carbon dioxide. If we infect plants with certain fungi, with certain fungi we can bring down, on, as a one-off, the world's carbon dioxide atmospheric level by 60 ppm. As a one-off, you only mm. get one go. Or we have, if we have machines that they're building in Switzerland, right? Have been building. If we have twenty-five million of these machines, they can compensate. They can suck out the atmosphere an entire year's worth of carbon dioxide output by human beings. Mm. It's a simple technological fix. Simple in the fact that we just have to throw money at it, and yeah. yet we're not doing it. And so that's why people like you should go into politics to make sure that it happens, so that our children are not stuck with a five to eight meter ocean level rise. Mm. If, when you include the positive feedback loops, which the IPCC is not including because they're very conservative. But if you read their reports, you'll see that if you do include the positive feedback loops and they are real and they are happening, we're looking at five to eight metre ocean level. And this is going to be a disastrously expensive exercise for the human race. That that, that one bothers me that we've there are forces like the tobacco industry in the old days would deny... And they still today deny that tobacco is addictive and bad for you. Mm. There are forces that claim that global warming is not real. Mm. And uh, the suffering will happen further down the line in the same way that people with lung cancer. There was an epidemic of it beginning around 1900. And the tobacco company managed to fight it for about half a century. And then it took another quarter century before we actually got traction. And uh, in fact, in some parts of the world, it hasn't got traction. So if you go to Spain... In America, people still smoke cigarettes like normal, mm-hmm. but in like they used to. But in Australia, cigarette smoking has just dropped enormously, and the tobacco companies hate it and are fighting it. The fact that people the, the tax and the uh, ads on packets might have a lot to do with that. I imagine would it? They, oh yeah, yeah. Um, it's what they call an elastic a product with an elastic demand, and so you can change the demand by applying force there are some products which don't have elastic demand so you've got to buy your milk you've got to buy your food but uh alcohol tobacco is, is relatively elastic yeah. just if, if you could 
uh, talk about some things that can that that uh, get you up in the morning when you're when you're uh, looking into the future. Let's, so, leave, let's end it on a positive. Oh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So okay. Well, um, <laughs> do you, Hamid, do you have children? No. Okay. Well, Alex and I both have a wisdom mm. that you do not, and here, we'll, we'll lay this wisdom on you. And here Please. it comes with regard to talking yes. about getting up in the morning. You might not realise this, but sleep is better than sex. I've heard that before. Yeah, he doesn't believe it, does he, Alex? <laughs> no, no, oh, it's better. My children woke me up at five thirty this morning. Oh, and this, uh, yeah. five, you got to five <laughs> thirty. <laughs> look, I think it depends on what's in uh, surplus. You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, look. So, what gets me up in the morning is yes. a good night's sleep. Mm-hmm. A good night's. In fact, I can give you some advice here. If you want to get fabulously wealthy, so then you can afford to go into politics easily, write a book on something bloody obvious like sleep is good for you <laughs> and write a, a a book do it under a fake identity so they won't tie it to you and you won't lose credibility and it's like these books that say um uh, drink some water uh or do a bit of exercise right really yeah okay so do a book on sleep and uh, you get fabulously wealthy so that, that's what gets me up in the morning the fact that i've had a good night's sleep and the thrill of seeing What's coming down the line? Like I just love going onto my Twitter feed and seeing what new discoveries I've got. So I get many feeds of information. I read my way through $10,000 worth of scientific literature every year. But that's sort of like a delay. I have to go to the magazine and flip through it and then it's sort of scattered. Whereas I've chosen about 20 feeds that I follow on Twitter and they're all science feeds and I just sort of skim through them, bing, bing, bing. As, as well as the fact that I've got um, embargoed advance ex- uh, access to some fees as well. It's the new knowledge and the, fa- and the joy of living and being alive. In 2017. Tw- oh, mate, yeah. I wouldn't be dead for quids. <laughs> uh, like being on the uh, right side of the grass, as they yeah, say. Yeah, sure. exactly. Well, look, thanks a lot for having us on and showing us around the ABC this morning. It's It's been amazing. Oh, yeah. thanks for coming to yeah. it. If I can help you with future academic careers, please contact me. You've got my phone number. Ring me. Do not email. Do not email. I get one every two minutes. Ring me. <laughs> no worries. Thanks, thanks a lot for coming. Thank you. Bye.